Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here are your co-hosts, Shenandoah Connor and Barron's Hall of Fame top advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of the Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors podcast. I am actually running this train solo today. We are letting John take a vacation. He very much needed it, but I'm excited. I get to spend some one-on-one time with someone who works very closely with our firm and whom I'm constantly learning from, and that is the always wonderful Ray Kelly with Think to Perform. I'm going to say hi to everybody, Ray. Hi. Hello, everyone. And I'm <laughs> I'm sure John is listening from uh, some nice beach somewhere. And I, he, to your point, he needed some time off. But I hope he has some sunscreen on that bald head of his. Yeah, he did send me a poolside pic. Um, so I am hoping he is, is wearing sunscreen, especially um, as we're recording this here in Texas. We actually have snow. So I've been blaming the New York folks for sending it our way. Because um, we've been bragging about our weather being so nice and sunny for the last month, uh, but not anymore. Uh, but yeah, no, he definitely needed a vacation and we, we let him have him every now and then. Um, but Ray, I'm really excited to have you on today to talk about something that's really at the core of uh, how we operate and what we do at our own firm, and that's culture. And do you want to kind of set us up here and kind of talk about, you know, what culture is and why it matters to us? Yeah, and I would just go back a step, you know, when I think about my, my career, uh, 20 something years in terms of leading financial advisors. And now the last decade, being an executive coach and consulting, and my biggest focus in both of those roles was culture. Uh, I think about culture is the, the soil in which you plant an organization, the people in an organization, your business in an organization. And it's more than just the soil. And I'll get into that a little bit later, but that was always my focus was, was how do I create a, uh, a culture and an environment where people could really excel and succeed and accomplish whatever they want. There's a famous Peter Drucker quote, and I am sure a lot of the listeners have heard of this management guru and it's so famous. I'll, I'll I'll have you fill in the blanks, but the people listening fill in the blanks too. It goes, blank eats blank for breakfast. Shenandoah, what's, what are the blanks? It's culture eats strategy for breakfast. That is a phrase I know very, very well with my background as well. And I really have to say, I love, I'm, as a gardener and a farm girl, I love the soil reference as culture being the soil. Um, because as a gardener, that's where all of the nutrients and everything that actually helps things grow, it comes from that soil. It, it anchors the plant. So, you know, there's just a lot of things that soil can do. And so in terms of a metaphor, I just, that really resonated with me. Yeah. And go back to that quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what does that imply? What do you think that implies? That the best strategy in the world doesn't mean anything if your culture is not up to snuff. You got it. It does not matter. It implies that the culture is so important. You can have the best strategy. I don't know, if Shannon, if you ever played sports as a child, okay? I don't know if you were on a team and the coach would walk up to the board and would draw up a play, okay? Whether you're in basketball or football or whatever sport it was, they draw up the play and every single play that's drawn up leads to what? Success, a touchdown, a made basket, 
uh, a spike on the volleyball court, whatever it is, every single play leads to success. Now, the thing is, those X's and O's are people. And guess what? You may be the X's and there's another coach on the other side drawing up plays for the O's, okay? And they're trying to stop the X's and every one of their plays looks like success. And the same thing happens in the boardroom. They have this great strategy. We're gonna do these top three priorities and it's going to lead to what? Transformational growth. But unfortunately those X's and O's are people who have been working a certain way for a long time. And strategy or the culture, that soil that they're working in is so incredibly important. So you have to understand that. So one of the things I want to ground the audience is, 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 is so what is culture? Okay. I'll ask you the question. How do you view, how do you view culture? What is culture to you? Well, I'll give you the nerd answer because I, I did have to take, uh, I got my master's is in organizational development and leadership. So I had to take a lot of classes on culture. And so they always say it's, you know, the norms and behaviors and, and attitudes that make up an organization that basically, you know, how people choose to act and operate on a daily basis is that's the culture. You got it. So I would say for people who are listening at all, maybe even taking notes, it's what you stand for. It's what everyone is shared by an organization. It's all encompassing. It includes the people are part of the culture, their beliefs, their values, their language, their systems, their experiences, and their results. So back to my analogy about the soil, you, you talked about the, the nutrients and all the different things in the soil. You can have a dark black soil, you can have a sandy soil, you can have all of these different things, but one of the things I came to realization as I studied culture over the years, it's also what grows in the soil. Okay, you have a, if you have a big palm tree, a big strong oak tree, or weeds, or vines, whatever it may be, that also defines the soil. And you and I beforehand were talking about, you know, the Enrons of the world. Enron in their lobby in Texas there had on the wall integrity, communication, respect and excellence. We know the story behind en Enron. That wasn't the culture there, okay? Part of it is the beliefs, the shared outcomes, all of those these different things, okay? The results, that's what culture is. It's not just the soil, it's what grows in it. I think it's real important to understand culture creation. And if John were here, he would be just shaking his head like crazy because this is why he hired me. Okay, was to help him with his culture. Okay, be very, very purposeful. Culture creation, whether you like it or not, you have a culture in your office. You have a culture in your home. You have a culture in your business, your community, your country. There's culture, whether you like it or not. Certain businesses, teams, families consistently succeed and win because they do it purposefully. So I'd write this down. Culture is planful, it's predictive, it's system-based, based on clear expectation, but bottom line, culture's on purpose for the good leaders. It's the reason why those same teams, same families, same organizations continue to kick off great people, great results, time after time. I know you've studied this a little bit, you and I were talking about it beforehand, and I could see you kind of Agreeing. Yeah, I'm just nodding uh, like emphatically over here at everything you're saying, disagreeing with everything, because I definitely have seen it both directions, both good and bad in my experience. 
Yeah, and that's what I wanted to share in an example, I think, of a, of a name and an organization that we all know, but also a name and an organization we may not know. Okay, and this name, I was listening to a podcast uh, a year ago, nine months ago, I don't know the exact time, but Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, was the guest, sitting in the guest chair. And he was being interviewed and he was talking about the culture that he's created at Netflix. But before that, what a lot of people don't know is Reed built a company before Netflix. In 1991, he started a company called Pure Software. And a lot of people don't know this about, but, about Reed, but Reed was kind of a, he was that a nerdy programmer, okay? Kind of, like we know the story about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Well, he was doing the same thing. He was, he was writing code. Okay, he, he had a company that debugged software and he built this company for 1991, 1995. They went public, things were going great. But one of the things in his culture that he created unintentionally was just follow the play. Okay, debugging is a very precise thing. He follows steps and he hired a bunch of people. They just follow stuff. He had hundreds of people working for him. The industry pivoted, okay, he needed to make a change. And he had an organization that could not change. They were they were hired because they just followed the play, and he was just he was sunk. He he had to sell to his biggest competitor. He didn't want to, had to, because he had created a culture that was not adaptable. So in 1997, he sells his company. I think he did pretty well, but he decides he's going to build a new company, and he starts brainstorming what will it be, and then. Netflix came about. And if you guys remember the where Netflix initially came to market, it was a competitor to compete against Blockbuster and all those um, store-wide stores on every corner selling um, DVRs and DVDs, um, cassette tapes. I think they were first cassette Yeah, tapes. I think we're still doing VHS when I was still, and we had to sit there and rewind everything before we took it back. I remember you got it. those days. <laughs> That's what he built was a competition to, to get rid of those new uh, nuisances that we all hated about blockbusters. Mm-hmm. You got a you got a late fee. You got a do not rewind fee. You'd go to the store expecting to get the new release, and you find you get there and they're they're all out of them. And that he created a mechanism that got rid of all of those things. Okay, and we started getting them in the mail and. We didn't worry about how many days it took us to watch it and stuff like that. It cost the same amount. It was a subscription, all of this stuff. And I won't go through the whole story behind this thing, but he, he wanted to create this thing. In the early 2000s, the tech bubble burst. Everyone was pulling back. Everyone was struggling in that tech industry, including his organization. At the time, he had about 120, 130 employees. And he had to cut a third of his employees because they were worried about meeting payroll. So they got really lean really fast and everyone was doing what they needed to get done. And he was literally carpooling with one of his co-founders in Netflix. Think about this guy just sold a company for several hundred million dollars and he's carpooling with one of his founders back and forth to work. And one of the things he says to his co-founder, he says, I've never had so much more fun. This is great. And she said the same thing. I'm having a ton of fun. And he said, we need to write down what we're doing. We need to become conscious of the culture that we're creating and what we want to create. And it became the formation of what's now famous at Netflix called the Culture Deck. Uh, I think it got released in the Silicon Valley 2012, 2013. Sheryl Sandberg talked about it in one of her books. 
but it was it he just decided what he wanted to create and this is back to uh what john was if he were here one of the things that he and i worked on was what do you want to create okay what needs to be there okay and sometimes you unintentionally create stuff you go this is not what i want intentionally do that and that's so important and that's why netflix now is a 250 billion dollar and had the ability to pivot and change because their culture was about thinking first and foremost okay they went from this this little thing that competed against the the nuisance fees and stuff like that to streaming they were first to get the market around streaming and then now everyone's streaming and one of the things that happened in hollywood was they started controlling the content hey if i, I it's great you could stream but if you don't have any content you can't compete now you think, what is Netflix known for right now? Yeah, they've got all kinds of shows that everybody's binge watching right now. I'm I'm way behind. I just I don't you keep got up. it. But they <laughs> they decided to go solve their problem. They were going to become like Hollywood. They're going to become a company that created product, and they're up for more awards than any other company. It's amazing, mm -hmm. but it's because of the culture that Reed and his founders decided to do up front. It's like, this is what we're going to do. And for the people listening, just Google it. Netflix culture deck. It's fascinating in a lot of ways because he created this deck. And I think for any organization, one of the things that Reed says, and I agree with him completely, is you need to determine your culture and create your culture before you scale. After you scale, it is really, really, really hard to change culture. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats lots of things for breakfast. Hey, we don't do it that way. Reed Hastings had to sell his company to his competitor because his culture could not compete. Hmm. Now he's doing it on purpose. So I, I encourage you to read that deck because in his culture deck, and it's nothing fancy. I was expecting something fancy. You know, this is Silicon Valley tech company. It's not, it's just a bunch of PowerPoints, but it's for, he can communicate to his people consistently over and over and over again, what we stand for. And it's more than just words. It's who gets promoted, who gets rewarded, who gets let go are aligned with these values, these beliefs, what he's trying to create versus the Enron ex example. We got the thing in the lobby, but no one's living by them. So I think it's real important to think about that. No, absolutely. And I think, I mean, you, you bring up quite a few good points. And often when we hear people talking about culture, it is that alignment thing, making sure you've got the right people on the bus and, you know, that everybody's, you know, rowing the same way and the same reasons. But you also brought up a really good point. And just with us coming and still being in the midst of the pandemic and coming off of the hills of what was a major shift required a lot of adaptability. Culture is also a critical component to being adaptable to situations. If you have a positive culture where everybody's engaged and working together as a team, it's easier to adapt when things change. And, and we saw a lot of advisors either make it or sink 
kind of during the situation because of that. And that's what I'm hearing again, same thing with Netflix It's the same thing that they were able to adapt because not just because of strategy and because they thought about streaming and all these other things, but that they had a culture that was able to adapt and keep people involved and making the right decisions. And, and I, I think too, where they're empowered, like you talked about before, before you had a bunch of just taskmasters that were really good about running the play, but like what we have, we have a culture of leadership. Every person's a leader all the way down from the person answering the phones, all the way up to the CEO. Everybody's a leader, can take initiative, has been empowered to do something. If they see a problem, they can solve it. And that makes a huge difference in your culture as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you said something right at the beginning, Shenandoah, a big part of culture is having the right people. Okay, the right people is a key ingredient to most cultures, okay? Um, when you define what your culture, what you want it to be, your ideal self, your ideal environment, your ideal culture, okay, either people are attracted to it and they go, you know, I don't want to be part of that. I'll give you an example, again, back to Netflix. I don't want to make this about Netflix, but one of the things they say in their culture deck is average performance will earn you a generous severance package. Think about that. Average performance will earn you a generous severance package. He's basically telling the people, he used to use it as orientation, this culture deck, and he realized sometimes he had hired people go, I, I don't want that. I've, I've always been pretty close to average. No, we want outstanding people. <laughs> we want the best in the industry to work here and we'll pay them the best. Okay. And he, he realized when you become clear about what you want to create, it will attract the right people and repel the wrong people. And make it pretty easy to identify if any of the wrong people accidentally sneak in. Cause sometimes they do, yes. but it, it shows up pretty quickly when, you know, everybody's holding each other accountable to, especially like how we, and I don't know if we, we could speak to this, but every single one of our meetings, we start off with, what do we stand for? We talk about the culture points and everybody can recite them off, you know, and, and everybody's kind of holding each other accountable because it's been over-communicated, over-communicated so many times. Um, but well, it, it does make it easier for it to just be enforced over time. But, you know, it's it's just, it becomes blazingly obvious who's who doesn't fit in. If, if in Yeah, and, I, and I'm glad you said that because that's where I was going to go with this. It's once you've determined what do you want to create, Okay, so if I were writing out a, a presentation for all of you and having you take notes right on the top of the culture creation, how to do it. The first thing you need to do is mindset. How do you want people thinking? How do you want people behaving in your culture? And write it down and get as granular as you can. I've seen some of the people I've worked with. One of the things that someone wrote is, I want people to be humble. I want people, no whining in my culture. One of the big things when I was leading an office in, in sales back in my days in Texas, I used to grow up where you are, um, no entitlement. I want personal responsibility. Boy, I hated entitlement. So I was very conscious of what I wanted to create. So underneath mindset, you create, well, this is what I want our people thinking, behaving, acting. Underneath that right awareness. Sometimes people just completely forget I'm going to put it on billboards. I'm going to put it on a culture deck. I'm going to put it on the wall. I'm going to do these different things, but I'm not going to rely 
on self-discipline and motivation to remember what we're trying to create here. Underneath awareness right systems. Uh, Michael Gerber wrote a book called E-Myth and in E-Myth he wrote uh, a definition of a system. He says it's when you remove discretion at the operating level, removing discretion at the operating level. You need to put systems in place that are aligned with that mindset, okay? Tracking systems, training systems, communication systems, reward systems, recognition systems, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. When systems are aligned with that mindset, it leads to underneath systems, I want you to write actions, actions that are aligned. And when you get actions that are aligned underneath that, write results. When results are aligned, draw a line from result back to mindset. When results are aligned, it reinforces the mindset. When they don't, results don't align with that mindset, the culture starts going, hey, this, this is not aligned. Mm-hmm. And back to conflict occurs, okay? And we, we conflict's healthy in a good culture. But over a period of time, if, as you get results that are aligned with the mindset, it leads to your identity. You start to go, this is the way we do things here. We do live in the client's best interest. We're transparent. We always show integrity. We're a team. We work with each other. We help each other. We're not cut through. Whatever your culture is, over a long period of time, your identity turns into culture. It's who we are. Of course we do it this way. It's the soil. It's what grows in the soil. It becomes healthy, but it's purposeful, planful, predictive. And the key to it is what you just said earlier. The key to alignment from mindset all the way down to culture is communication times a factor of 10. I always say that. Times a factor of 10, what? 10 times more than you think you need to do it. So if you need to think you need to do it 100 times, you need to do it 1,000 times. So if John were here and you've, you've experienced it, the culture at, at Cotton Wealth Management is they begin meetings talking about their culture, what we value. People are asked, hey, what are our top five values? Randomly. So you never know if it's going to be you. So you better be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's that's form of one of many systems to remove discretion so that everyone, a study was done by uh, uh, one of my friends, a guy named Don McPherson used to own a company called Modern Survey. It's one of those employee engagement companies. It helps people get the best out of their people. And one of the things they do for, I think they had like 1,200 clients across the world, different companies, businesses, both profit, nonprofit, and they do one of those people satisfaction surveys. So they'd ask you, what do you think of your boss? What do you think of um, your benefits? Whatever it is, all those questions. But one of the questions they asked every year is, how engaged are you at work? And I'll kind of have the people at home guess this from home. What percentage of the people, and this is, he sold the company at Aon about five years ago. So this is from probably 2015, 2016, the last time I saw this this data from him. What percentage of the people say that they give it their all? They're fully engaged. And again, these are people self-assessing. What do you think? Take a guess. It's like the price is right. Less than a third. Less than a third. You're, you would be right. It was 16%. So think about it. And oh, by the way, that 16% was an all-time high. Usually it was lower. I've seen it as low as 9 and 10% of the people say I'm giving up my all. Think about this. Average organization 
16% of the people are actually given a girl. They also had a place where they could actually say, I give the minimum necessary to get by. <laughs> Think about that. 22% of the people, all time low. It usually was higher than that. But typically one in five and one in four people in your organization, the listeners out there give as little as they can to get by. And maybe to keep their job, maybe get a bonus level, whatever it is, but it's their own thing. I'm doing as little as I can. One of the questions I asked people, my clients was, what if you wanted to give that 84% of the people who are not giving their all, what could you do to get them to give it their all? Because I would argue tremendous difference in output and results, not necessarily tremendous difference in terms of how much work the leader has to do, just different type of work. How do you do that? Shannon, how do you get people to give it their all? Well, you got to connect with them at an, at an emotional level and connect with a why that they're going to be passionate about and want to get up for and do something about every day. You hit on it. You have to give them a purpose worthy of their best efforts. You hope your, your mission, okay, the culture you're trying to create is a purpose worthy of these people and it's aligned with their values. But in order to do that, you would need to do what? First, you would need to go ask them and also be very clear about what you're trying to create and see if we have a match. What Don found at Modern Survey was people who knew, who could espouse what the company's values, vision, mission, bottom line, you put all those things together, they start to form the culture. The people who could tell you what it is for, Cut Wealth Management as an example, or Netflix, 51 times more likely to be fully engaged than the people who could not name those things. What Reed Hastings was doing when he told his partners, let's write this down. Let's become completely aware of what we're trying to create here and what we stand for. It became a weapon of mass attraction for many people, the right people, and a weapon of mass destruction repelled the wrong people. I loved it. And that's what we're trying to do with Cotton Wealth Management is becoming clearer and clearer about that. And the more you're in it, the more, because I'm sure Reed Hastings would say that culture deck's changed a dozen times, pieces of it. We need to be clearer about this. We need to add this. We need this. I don't think that's the right word. Let's take that out. And for all of you, this is what John's been doing at Cotton Wealth Management. It's he's chipping away at this. Okay, one of the things that's a big part of your culture is he wants to become a leadership development factor. Okay, he wants to be known industry-wide, not only as a Barron's Hall of Fame practice, but he wants to be known as we develop leaders here, really, really good leaders. Quite frankly, when you get really, really good leaders, they multiply really, really good leaders and you can actually take up market share, market space and do different industries and you know do what Netflix did, switch from hey, we're, grocery, we're going to compete against the grocery store and things like that. And then we're streaming. And the next thing you know, we're one of the best producers of movies and TV shows in the world. Like, holy cow, it's because he's created the right culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and talking about that, and leaders and multiplying, I know we, we've talked a lot on our last couple of podcasts about 
acquisitions and everybody's wanting acquisitions. And there's a lot of advisors that are saying they're struggling to get deals and why are they struggling? Or they have a really bad transition and it's not a good experience and it ends up being a headache for them. And a lot of that is because they haven't, um, not only have they not defined their culture on that, but they don't have a bench. They don't have people that can take on and lead those new practices that they've acquired. So it's just another, in terms of kind of bringing it back to being relevant to our audience, the more that you can, um, you know, be clear about this and it makes it easier for you to assess and find proper acquisitions, onboard them, bring everybody on board. It's just a better experience, but also, you know, for us just to be able to have that bench to be able to draw onto and, and work with. And, um, you know, just that got me thinking about that. It's also got me thinking, um, you know, you talked about all the different pieces of culture. There's attitudes and beliefs. We define this deck. Everyone can talk about what the mission values, um, values statements are, all of that. But there's also a lot of the systems in place and a lot of actions that we do. So like leadership's our thing. There is monthly leadership training for everybody from the receptionist to the CEO. There is uh, mentorship and sponsorship throughout. Everybody's got somebody that they're coaching and leading at a different time. Um, and developing each other constantly. So it's not just something that we put on the wall that looks nice and fancy and everybody can regurgitate, but how are we living it throughout on a daily basis? And then how is that translating into strategy, our growth strategy, you know, those types of things as well. So I got all the neurons firing right there, right? Again, lots of things. You're filling in the blanks for, for me and for the audience. I just love it because it's, it's more than just the words on the wall. Okay, back to the systems, the training systems, the recognition systems, the reward systems have to be aligned with what you're trying to create, your culture creation. Um, you know, yeah, it's uh, what, what gets measured gets done. Um, that I, Oh, man, I can never get rid That's the 4X guys, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that says that what gets measured get done. I'm not good at recalling who said what. I'm mad with the quotes. I, I can throw them out there, but I can't attribute them properly. But that's one of those things. If culture matters to you, you've got to measure those things related to culture. And so the reward systems and tracking those things and um, all of that as well is, is pretty critical to it. Yeah. And it's, it, I, I don't um, blame you or I empathize with you not remembering sometimes where you hear quotes and stuff like this. This is the reason why I'll never write a book. <laughs> you know, I don't remember how much of it came from somebody else. You got it. Just like, I think I'm, right these days, it's all come from somebody else anyways. It's just your I'm, spin on it. <laughs> yeah, one of my mentors said it to me. He said, right, this, almost all of this stuff has been written somewhere. It's just like I'm, I'm reading the Bible right now. And it's, it's amazing. You read the same stuff in the Bible. And it's back to the times of Plato and Socrates. And I remember when my college, they were writing about this stuff. And I'm like, that's why I'm like, I, I don't know if I'll write a book. I'll have a different angle and different approach, but I've heard it from so many different places. But it's also, we have to over-communicate this. Over-communicate whatever the culture is you're trying to create. And part of that is, it's not just saying it over and over again. It's, yeah, all of a sudden the, the sign is on the wall. Okay, one of the things, one of the, the values uh, for the firm is family. And you go into the, uh, they have a family wall, picture of people, all the people that work there and their families. That's a form of communication to reinforce it's important. One of my clients, um, it's one of the values for the, their firm. And on their business plan in all of their conference rooms and offices is art. 
And all of the art in their office is done by children, family members of clients and people. So everyone remembers it's real important why we're doing what we're doing is to develop and have a future for these families. And I was just like, what a creative way to over communicate one of your core values that is important to your culture. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. I, I go back to my days of leading a, uh, a sales organization and I wanted to make sure that we were action oriented. We took action. Don't sit around and hem and haw and just like decide to move. There's three levels of, of commitment. First one is the rational, logical, and that opens up your mind. The second level is the emotional. Okay, people go, you know, we're in sales, Shenandoah. We know that people buy based on what? Emotion. Emotion gets people to decide, but it doesn't get them to necessarily to act. The final level of commitment comes when you change your behavior. And I use a riddle to help people understand this. And it's, I'll do it with you. And if you play along, I'm sure you've heard it before. But five frogs are sitting on a log. One decides to jump off. How many are left on the log? I'll say it again for the audience. Five frogs are sitting on a log. One decides to jump off. How many are left on the log? Simple math. Well, I'm sitting here thinking, did the log spin? Did it tip? <laughs> <laughs> There's a trick to this riddle. That's what she's doing. Oh, he's tricking me. I know, Ray. Well, I, usually it's John who tries to ask me trick questions. So I'm assuming I'm always like, okay, what's, what's, there's something hidden here. And I'm always thinking about that. <laughs> and there is something hidden. And the answer is five. Most people will say four. And it's because I framed it a little bit. I said, it's simple math. When I simple say simple math, people go, okay. One decided to jump off five, it's, it's four. But the answer is five because there's a difference between deciding and doing. We often get people to decide to do it, but what they do is they rely on self-discipline and motivation to jump off and then the whirlwind gets them all these terms and stuff like that you've heard before and they don't jump, okay? I wanted my group, once they decided they were gonna go do something, increase their business, make a change to their business model, go do it, don't wait, jump. So next thing you know, frogs were all over my communication. It'd be on the bottom at the end of my meeting. I'd get people to, again, act, jump. And my, my assistant found something on the internet and it was five frogs sitting on a log. That became the, the, the bottom part of my, my footer on my email to my organization. And frogs started showing up. We had Elvis frogs, we had singing frogs. We had all these different frogs. It was my form of communicating times a factor of 10 of a key part of our culture until we had had the, we started acting where everyone goes, you've decided, let's go. And we held each other accountable to taking action. And then I could go move on to the next item or two. Okay, I have a lot of examples like that, but it's just like, that's what you have to do is have multiple systems and one of those may be just simply frogs jumping around. Yeah, and having a mascot or, or some way to kind of reiterate things is definitely um, very useful. And, and I apologize if you're hearing some background right now because the kid kids are running around. <laughs> I apologize we, to everyone at home. I just heard one break loose. <laughs> Joyce we, is still all, working. working yeah, we've all lived here in the... Yeah, we've all lived during the pandemic. We cannot control all of those things. Yeah, I try to be quick with the mute, but they uh, they broke loose. And yeah, with us being stuck at a snowstorm, the kids have been out of school all week. 
Um, but no, I, I mean, I think that's great that there's, there's over communication, but there's so many different ways to communicate it. So it's, uh, it stays fresh and interesting and it can become fun. And, and then it just becomes another part of your culture that everybody loves to engage in. And, and, you know, again, you just make it more fun. And instead of it being, oh my God, here we go again, or reciting everything again, um, you know, making it fun, I think is a really great way to, um, again, keep everybody engaged. I do want to kind of draw it to, you know, thinking about our advisors, thinking about growth. Um, and we've been talking about culture and strategy, but, you know, really on a tactical level, how can they leverage culture to grow their practice? Um, well, I, I would start with this. Answer these four questions. You have to answer it for yourself and then for your organization, not once. You have to be regularly answering these questions. This is what I get leaders to do because it's real important, critical questions for culture. Number one is what's in it for me, okay? And when I say what's in it for me, it's what's in it for every single person in your organization. I have to be able to tell them what's in it or you in terms of being part of this culture, okay? Second question I have to answer for them is what's in it for us? If we achieve this, we do all these, these values, get these results, all these, what's in it for us? People wanna be part of something bigger than themselves. True happiness comes from that. It doesn't come from being by yourself, folks, okay? So answering that, what's in it for us when we work together to accomplish this end? The third thing you have to answer is what's in it for the client? How do they benefit from us doing all this stuff? Okay. I've seen some people that do a really good job with number one and number two, but they forget the client. Some of the examples of some companies that fail long-term, they become focused inward versus client-centric. I think it's real important why it's the best interest of the client if we grow, if we develop leaders within our culture. It's not always obvious for people how the client benefits from this. Make sure you as a leader can tie that rope backwards and forwards. And the final question that a leader needs to answer for their people is how we will win. They need to know that they have confidence in the leader that if we execute on this and this and this, we will win. So back to a football analogy, it's just when the coach says, hey, in order for us to win, we need to run the football. We need to stop the run and create turnovers. And it tells the team that if we do those three things, we will win this football game. And you as a leader have to be able to say that to your, your group. If we can do this, these three things or this one thing, you know, keep an unbelievable wow client experience that will lead to this, 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 and this, and we will continue to grow and prosper. The client wins, you win, and as an organization, we win. You have to be able to communicate. And not just once, you're doing it all the time. Okay, why the receptionist is offering coffee to the client. I need to tie that back to this, the client winning, us winning, you winning, um, Mr. and Mrs. Receptionist. Okay, you need to do those things. And I think that's a starting point for all the listeners. Okay, get there. It's at the foundation helping you really grow your organization. Again, culture definition, do it before you have scale. After you have scale, it's really hard to change culture. Sometimes you've got to go, I got to punt. Either I have to burn the building down or sell it or go create a new one. Uh, it's really difficult. No, absolutely. And, and I, I, you know, with my background, I did a lot of uh, consulting for 
academic medical centers, engineering firms, a lot of different ones. And almost every single time that we were brought in to address financial issues, logistical issues, strategy issues, supply issues, all of that stuff, it almost always came down to attitudes and beliefs and culture that everything else, all of these uh, things were just symptoms of an underlying issue. And it just kept coming back to those things. And I know uh, we, we would talk about the different levers or levers. I know we always have to debate how things are pronounced on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> levers or levers of, of how things, how you kind of move culture around. But I mean, everything from um, you know, a bad acquisition to, you know, things just falling apart during the pandemic or, you know, bad customer service ratings, all of that kept coming back to culture. And that's where I learned over my career. That's where I always would start. Um, and like you said, it's really hard to go back and, and plug up those holes once they're there, you, you know, plug up the dam, the, the infrastructure, the integrity of your organization has already been compromised if you haven't been intentional with creating that culture from the onset. Absolutely. And I, I think that's a great, my years of being an executive, the number of acquisitions we've stepped away from was far more than the ones we did. And almost always the number one reason was culture mismatch. It just, it's so, you're just like, it's pushing a rope sometimes. You're like, we've, we're much better to walk away from this when culture is not um, aligned. Um, and when you get alignment in culture, it's, it's, I won't say a rarity, but it's it sure does make it easier. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I've, I've lived through some very painful mergers and acquisitions where everybody got excited about the money and like, oh, we're going to be able to merge and we're going to have all the support and like, oh, we're going to be able to have this extra capacity or this new, um, uh, capability to be able to provide another service. And then they spent the next five years fighting each other constantly or undermining each other. I, I've even seen teams actually undercut and undersell each other on projects um, where it, it, there was no greater good at all. It was just my team versus your team, you know, years later, even after the official two-year kind of transition period, quote unquote. Um, and so I've just, I, I've seen it go bad so many times and it just made a huge difference. And like the same thing with the recruiting and hiring. Um, once you really have a great, well-defined culture, um, I've done this multiple times in, in my old business. I had an agency for 10 years. Um, and I even see it now with John, since we've gotten clear with our culture, we're putting it out there we're, and all of our communications that we're doing, we're not having to, I mean, we are working hard because we want to grow, but we really aren't having to work as hard with trying to find recruits and acquisitions, it's more of that now we get to choose the right ones versus hunting and trying to look for warm bodies. We've, we're attracting people. They're getting excited about it. And I've seen that in, in marketing agencies. I've seen it in landscape companies. I've seen it in any type of industry you're talking about. When you're clear about that, people are going to find you and they want to be a part of that organization that knows what they stand for, stands for it, and is out there living it. And you're, it's just, it's one of those things that just kind of, it's a, once you get that ball rolling, it, it, it's a snowball effect. You got it. Back to our, the weapon of mass attraction. Um, it's what it is. It becomes a magnet to the right people, the right reasons and stuff like that. Now I'll, I'll end it with this, Shannon, I know we're about at time, but it's um, culture is its strongest when it's our culture. 
So if you're a leader of an organization, don't do this alone, okay? Be open to people um, participating, challenging, all of those things. There's certain things you as a leader will say, this is non-negotiable. This is part of our culture. Other things you're going, I kind of like that. And when people feel it's our culture, those are the strongest cultures. This is back to, it's so important. The founder and CEO is aligned with what's on the wall, but you want everyone in your culture back to, they're in the day-to-day. They're the ones, it's the cement that keeps things together. It's the glue, it's all of these things. And they're the ones who will see when actions are aligned or not aligned. Um, And you want them to be part of that. So my last piece of advice for people, the strongest cultures, it's our culture. No, absolutely. And that's why, um, you know, kind of just to tag onto that and then we'll wrap up is um, I've seen in, in terms of kind of making it our culture is if you can have everybody communicate back when they've seen those values in practice and because everybody interprets things a little bit differently, leadership means something different for somebody else, family, security, those things might mean something different for each other. But how did we live those values today? Or how did you witness somebody in our organization living those values today? And they take ownership and then they also want to get recognized, you know, in the, in the future for, for showing those up. So I definitely have seen that too, that even if the, they're defined how they live them out, if that's how they can take ownership of it as well. And uh, just kind of, you know, go from attitudes and to actions in terms yeah. Of, of, yeah. And I know you guys do that at um, Cut and Wealth, quarterly awards for people living in alignment with the values. Uh, one of the things that we do at my company, Think to Perform, is similar every month in our monthly um, organization meeting. We have a section where we, we do value sharing, where we recognize people on our team that have lived in alignment with one of our core values. And we do it in front of everyone in the firm. Um, it's the same thing. It's a system so that we continue to recognize, reward, promote um, culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and thank you again, Ray, for joining us. Um, if, if people want to learn about you, find out more um, about you and be able to connect with you, how can they do that? Well, probably the easiest way is just go to our website, think to perform, the word think, the number two, perform.com. You'll find out all about our organization. You can even hit on my bio and see my picture from a professional photographer a decade ago when I looked young and attractive. (laughs) <laughs> you got that little sideways little stance and you're all suited up. We, ha- we will be putting that on our, our image again for the podcast this week as well. Awesome. Um, so I'll include that link for y'all. And um, I can't stress enough, like how much like Ray just hit it on the head about how important culture is to growing a financial advisor practice. And if John was here, he would be, you know, constantly going off about how, what a difference it's made for our own practice. And, and really that that was the turning point for, for cut and wealth and really turning it into the machine that it is today and, and just the forward momentum that we have. Um, so if you have somebody that you think would be a good guest or you would like to be a guest yourself, don't forget to submit yourself to the podcast. We're always looking for great people to interview on anything related to growing a financial advisor practice. So thank you once again, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. 
Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.